This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast based on my book about a little-known group of activists in the mid-20th century, and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership and relationships. I'm Dr. Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University. In this podcast series about the Married Women's Association, I've been exploring the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of how MPs, feminists, authors and lawyers came together to fight for equal partnership in marriage. I've been going back in history to uncover how even this group's failed attempts at reform created unexpected ripples that connect to fundamental principles of equality today. This is episode five. In 1952, the Married Women's Association had a shocking, dramatic row that made the front pages of national newspapers and led to the resignation of virtually its entire executive committee. This was because of the actions of the then president of the association and the first woman to practice as a barrister, Helena Normanton. Specifically, this was because of the evidence she submitted on the association's behalf to the Royal Commission on Marriage and Divorce which was a reform body commissioned by the government to examine reform. It was a big deal for the Married Women's Association because it was the main forum in which married women's legal status was reviewed on an official basis since the Second World War. So it was a huge opportunity for the association to potentially influence reform, but the evidence submitted by Normanton didn't reflect the views of the other members, and the association split apart. In this fifth episode, we'll be taking a closer look at this fight, as well as the personalities of the woman who supported Normanton and left the association with her. It shows how, even in a small pressure group, agreeing on the best way to achieve reform can be difficult. Examining what went wrong for the association on this occasion is revealing. The split undoubtedly diluted the Married Women's Association's message and consequently its chances for reform. Studying the split also uncovers how reformists often need difficult personalities to be successful. Yet, this can lead to fractious relationships and can therefore be a hindrance as well as an advantage. Episode 3 clarified what the Married Women's Association chiefly stood for. Firstly, the idea of joint partnership in marriage was key to explaining and justifying the need to value housewives' work in the home in economic terms. Secondly, in addressing how this work should be valued, the association agreed that instead of pursuing a policy of wages for wives whereby the husband would pay the wife a wage for her work, equality in marriage would be better achieved by pooling assets, specifically income and the family home. But this was not clear in Normanton's written submission to the Royal Commission. As their president, Helena Normanton had multiple opportunities to present the Married Women's Association's message and proposed something akin to wages for wives instead, an agreed alliance. As her biographer, Dr Judith Bourne, explained to me, so she's president of the Married Women's Association and she does, well, as I understand it, because she never denies it, she does submit the evidence without passing it by anybody else or by certainly by sort of showing the rest of the association. They don't ever seem to debate it. Now, maybe I've missed the evidence, but I, and she, she doesn't ever deny that she's done that. She rejected the association's policy of joint ownership during marriage because she believed it would, 
lead to the misery and destitution of many wives and children, helpless in the face of husbands' bankruptcy or irresponsible spending. As well as vetoing the joint ownership approach in favour of wages for wives, Helena Normandon made a further extraordinary proposal. Husbands should be compelled to provide their wives with personal spending money and, she told the Daily Mirror, If a wife remained willfully inefficient at housekeeping after a court gave her every help to improve, her husband should get the legal right to suspend her pocket money. As a very last resort, she might be jailed. Just a short sentence would do. Normanton's comments to the press about housewives being punished for their insubordination are rather shocking and are also baffling considering her lifelong dedication to improving the position of women in law. Her proposal for a wife's allowance sounds rather like a paycheck with the husband as payer able to withhold the cheque or even to threaten to incarcerate his wife if she didn't perform her wifely duties. The wife would therefore have been in the position of the husband's employee or possibly worse, domestic servant. And with him as boss, it's easy to see how concerns about the master-servant relationship historically categorising the marital union would arguably have been reinforced by Normanton's proposals. I asked Dr Judith Bourne about this. I think it is so complicated because I, I, I just wonder whether it's a case of you have a really good idea. So it's mm. a, it is a brilliant idea, isn't it? Saying that women get wages for housework. Because if you think about the amount of washing and ironing and cleaning and cooking that women do even today, and yet it's completely unpaid and we go out to work as well. So what I suspect it was a really good idea. It seemed really radical. But then the reality of it was a different thing. Because once you start paying women for housework, that gets labelled as women or wife's work, doesn't it? And then what do you do if the wife doesn't treat it as a job? Then you have to have some kind of recourse for men. So I wonder whether in principle it's a really good idea, but in reality it just can't work. And perhaps she's just human and can't answer the question. Or perhaps she's too honest in trying to answer it instead of being like a politician and fudging it. As well as stipulating that, quote, willfully inefficient housekeeping should become punishable by law, Normanton recommended rules on how wives were to spend their allowance, which included excessive expenditure upon gambling, smoking or alcoholic indulgence and the like shall not be deemed a proper outlay. Here's Dr. Bourne again. So it's very difficult to categorise Helena Normanton's feminism because I don't think she fits into any particular box because I think some of her views are really radical, sort of Josephine Butler kind of radical. So how she feels about divorce, she's way ahead of her time. But on the other hand, some of the things she says are slightly questionable. So, for example, her views on marriage, she talks about it as being a contract of equals so that would make her sound like an equality feminist but then the examples she gives are very they're, they're in fact very traditional they're very conservative so I struggle I think probably an equality feminist but I'm not I'm not sure and certainly then when she talks about women wives being paid a wage by their husbands and then becoming risk you know that they are responsible for that money so that if if they misuse it so perhaps they spend too much and they don't eat the right amount of food and you know that there's a shortage of money then somehow they're responsible in law to it and I'm, I find that very confusing. When evaluating Normanton's submission it's important to appreciate how these issues were viewed at the time. 
Normanton believed that the Married Women's Association's joint ownership approach would be considered preposterous by the Royal Commission of Marriage and Divorce. She might have been right, for there was a perception in the early 1950s that equality in marriage had already been achieved and that the pendulum had swung too far in favour of women's rights. After a career in a male-dominated legal profession and having been involved in reforming law previously, Normandon probably felt her experience qualified her to ascertain a better route for reform. Again, I asked Dr Bourne about this. You know, you have to understand I come from a perspective where obviously I am very interested in her, so I'm probably quite sympathetic, but I... I suspect she's been a barrister. She's been used to behaving in a certain way. You know, she's there. She's, you know, barristers are self-employed people. They take a case, they run it on their own and they deal with the consequences on their own. So I suspect she probably dealt with this in the same way that she thought she had an idea. She thought it was a very good idea and oh, it's inexcusable. I, I suspect that's what she does. I think she just wants her own way and she does it. Remember, though, Normanton's circumstances at this time. And I think we have to remember that she's quite elderly by then. and She dies mm. in 1957. She's, she's retired in 1951. And mm. she, if you read her archive, she's quite infirm by then. She talks about having arthritis in me and crippling pain um, and finding it difficult to walk about. I, I think clearly she has some kind of heart problem. So I, I do think we do... we call me sentimental but I think we need to be sympathetic or sensitive to the fact that she is by now an elderly lady. So instead of joint ownership Normanton saw her own proposal of an agreed allocation as a pragmatic means of extending married women's property rights without threatening men's. As she explained We want to fight for the rights of widows and wives on a practical basis. Some of these people are completely anti-man and want to press for legislation that would be unfair to husbands. They demand that a wife should have 50% of her husband's income, but we realise such a division is impossible. While there's no evidence that Married Women's Association members who supported joint ownership were anti-man, as Normandon suggests, There were those outside the association who were unsympathetic towards their cause for reform. As this satirical article on the Married Women's Association shows, some individuals used Normandon's dissension with the rest of the group as a reason to criticise the group further. BMWA, Latvia Nissel's take the place of the dreaded words, has not only fallen out with half of mankind, but has fallen out with itself. The rolling pins are out! and the harsh words of a weaker sex opening fire on femininity crackle like machine gun fire. Okay, let's just summarise then for a second. Helena Normanton thinks the best way for women to achieve equality and to get money of their own is for them to agree with their husbands to get a wage for their housework and for their husbands to pay them that money but only if they actually do that work properly. The Married Women's Association as a whole don't agree with this policy and they have a completely different stance based on joint ownership of assets. Helena Normanton is their president, she completely disregards this and she takes the Married Women's Association's opportunity to present evidence to the Royal Commission on Marriage and Divorce and says The Married Women's Association's view 
is this wages for wives agreed allowance policy. As you can imagine, this led to a massive row. Helena Normandon submitted her evidence on the 15th of February 1952. And shortly afterwards, Juanita Francis, remember she was the founder of the Married Women's Association, she calls an emergency meeting of the group. At this meeting, the chair, Doreen Gorski, read letters of resignation from Helena Normanton, the vice chair, Helen Nutting, and the treasurer, Evelyn Hamilton. She also spoke on Helena Normanton's behalf and said Normanton was going to withdraw the evidence. Doreen Gorski then announced her own resignation and declared the meeting closed. The minutes of this meeting described the loud cries of dissent from all parts that followed and members voted that the submission should be withdrawn and replaced with a new memorandum of evidence. The Married Women's Association was in crisis. They'd already been granted two extensions because of Normanton's ill health. So the submission was already more than one month past the Royal Commission of Marriage and Divorce's deadline. The Married Women's Association might not have known whether a resubmission of evidence was even possible then. And members' opposition to the evidence didn't just lose them their president. They'd also lost most of their executive committee and potentially the opportunity to present their case for reform to the Royal Commission at all. Privately, there were several members who were outraged by Normanton's actions and this anger spilled over into the public domain, becoming front page news. On behalf of the association, Ambrose Appelby, the solicitor that we heard from in previous episodes, released a statement to the press claiming Normanton's evidence had been submitted to the Royal Commission without previous circulation to the executive or the members, didn't implement the principles of the association and disturbed members of the association. In response, Helena Normanton wrote to Appelby with what she called a kindly warning to stop making statements in the press while threatening to report him to the Law Society for his behaviour. In other words, as a fellow lawyer, Normanton was threatening Appelby's career and reputation. One of the main complaints was that no one had actually seen the evidence before Helena Normanton had submitted it. But a report in Normanton's paper suggests at least one meeting had taken place to discuss, at least at some detail, what was going to be proposed. Dora Russell, the writer we heard from in a previous episode who also claims to have been one of the first women to ever wear shorts, recollected this meeting and she provides a glimpse of Normanton's formidable and authoritative character as president of the association. So powerful was Mrs Normanton's hold over her audience that she would not admit of any correction whatever and most of the laymen present were overawed by the letters QC, if not by the emphatic banging on the desk by Mrs Normanton when interrupted and her words, I won't have it altered. Regardless of who had or hadn't reviewed Normanton's memorandum, the Married Women's Association's public rift was caused by dissension over its policy of joint ownership in marriage. And this split may have adversely affected the association's chances of achieving reform. 
when Normanton was misleadingly telling journalists that the Married Women's Association advocated a system whereby the husband would provide the wife with pocket money, the association's very different message was clouded. It's therefore unsurprising that Juanita Francis publicly dismissed Normanton's evidence. Mrs Normanton's report weakened the position of the married woman, for it laid down that the husband should still be regarded as the economic head of the household. She went on to say it reduced a wife's status to that of a charwoman or domestic help. As concerns had been expressed that press coverage of Normanton's views had misrepresented the association's true agenda, it was important that the association's new memorandum made it clear what joint ownership and equal status did and did not mean. To this end, the association's submission to the Royal Commission clearly stated that it was recommending the policy of joint ownership, mirroring the provisions of its Bill for Equal Partnership as we heard in Episode 3. When the Royal Commission reported in 1956, it said that it fully endorsed the view of equal partnership. And it also said that the wife's contribution to running the home and looking after the children is just as valuable as that of the husband in providing for the home and supporting the family. As a result, the Commission was asserting that women were, rightly, no longer prepared to accept the poor treatment that historically their subordinate status had made them suffer. The Royal Commission also saw wives' failed expectations of equal partnership as contributing to escalating divorce rates. On the face of it, this looked like a victory for the Married Women's Association. In its newsletter reporting on the Royal Commission's findings, it said the Commission's recognition that work inside and outside the home were of equal value was nearly word for word what Juanita Francis reported back to the Six Point Group 18 years ago when, as chairman of the newly created Subcommittee of Married Women, she had concluded her preliminary investigation. However, accepting equal partnership in theory and bringing it to fruition in law are two very different things. The association's proposal to give wives a share of their husband's income was rejected unanimously by the Commission as were proposals to give each spouse a right to information about their partner's earnings. The association wouldn't have had any success with the submission of evidence prepared by Helena Normanton either, because the Commission rejected unanimously the proposition of an agreed allowance to be paid to the wife, the wages for wives approach. The Commission also went against Normanton's assertions that housekeeping money should continue to be the property of the husband. In fact, reform of housekeeping savings was one of the few recommendations it did make for reform. The Royal Commission concluded that housekeeping savings should belong to the husband and wife in equal shares. This wasn't an endorsement of the Married Women's Association's broader ethos of joint ownership, but it arguably did demonstrate that the association's view was gaining traction, thanks in part to their decade of campaigning since the Blackwell and Blackwell case that we heard about in the previous episode, a spotlight had been shone on the issue of ownership of housekeeping money. In its newsletter, the Married Women's Association stated that members had responded to the report with mixed feelings. 
It acknowledged the small successes, but was clearly disappointed by the Commission's failure to recommend comprehensive reform. In the aftermath of the Royal Commission's report and the Married Women's Association split, the Association returned to its strategy of parliamentary lobbying and prepared a new draft of its Bill for Equal Partnership. They said they hadn't intended to put forward another draft bill for equal partnership, but new factors had emerged which made it imperative to press on, they said. They were referring to the Council of Married Women, the group of defectors who had split from the Married Women's Association over Helena Normanton's evidence. The Council of Married Women was established by former leading Married Women's Association members Helena Normanton, Doreen Gorski, Helen Nutting, Evelyn Hamilton and Juliette Rees-Williams and was a pressure group that was separate but parallel to the Married Women's Association in that it was also focused solely on improving the legal status of married women. It is unclear precisely when the group was set up because in the minutes of the meeting in which Doreen Gorski read out all those resignations, there is a postscript. It read, On leaving the meeting, members, to their astonishment, were asked by press representatives what they thought of the new organisation which had been formed by Mrs Normanton and Mrs Gorski. This was their first knowledge of any such action on the part of these officers. The fact that the Council of Married Women was formed so quickly following the split meant that the new breakaway group could take advantage of the press attention swirling around these resignations. But it also suggested the creation of the Council of Married Women might have been in the air for the Married Women's Association rebels for some time. While Normanton had not been a Married Women's Association member for long when she took up the presidency of the association and prepared the first memorandum, Gorski, Nutting and Hamilton had been long-standing prominent members of the group and were really involved in the politics and tensions within the association. For this reason, other Married Women's Association members were even more shocked when they supported Normanton's memorandum, which so clearly went against the association's vision of joint ownership. Juanita Francis, for instance, trusted Gorski as chairman to ensure Normanton's evidence was consistent with the aims of the group, saying that she had kept her reservations to herself hoping devoutly that the chairman would intervene with Mrs Normanton and make her see the points of view of the association. With hindsight, it's clear that Gorski failed to do this because she didn't agree with the Married Women's Association's view. There isn't much information available about Doreen Gorski, known professionally as Doreen Stevens, in the archives and in the public domain. Even though she was the BBC's first female executive, and she was the editor of women's programmes. I asked Doreen Gorski's friends and family what she was like, and her grandson told me. I, I sort of remember her as a, she was a woman who, who was unconventional. She, she did not, by her own admission, you know, she, she boasts that she loved cigars and, and, uh, and fine wine, you know, maybe drinking a little too much and, and would, would mix with the boys to drink, to, to smoke cigars and stuff. She said that was silly, you know, she didn't understand why she couldn't go and have an important conversation with other people. By the time she joined the Married Women's Association, she had experienced hardship on several fronts. She was divorced, a single mother, 
and had strong views on women's rights, including birth control. When I spoke to Doreen Gorski's daughter, Joy Freeman, she read to me from Gorski's own private papers. I find the Catholic attitude to birth control quite unacceptable, especially in its effects on poor countries and overpopulation generally, with all its myriad dangerous consequences. Suddenly, in wartime and unmarried, I was pregnant again, but without the money, coping with the situation in the comfortable way available freezelessly. There's nothing but for it but to visit a backstreet abortionist. So her views about women's rights were in part influenced by her own experiences. I also spoke to John Butler about this, who wrote Gorski's obituary and was her friend and relative. I think she was living at a time when people were realised things had to change. And she was able to articulate that sort of, that what was needed in change. And that came partly from our own personal experience of divorce and having to, having to bring up children as a single parent. And um, that was not an easy thing to do in the 19, late 1930s, 1940s. And it must have made her very aware of where things were very severely lacking. Depictions of Gorski's personality by family members suggest she was an invaluable member of the Married Women's Association leadership. As vice chairman and subsequently chairman of the Married Women's Association in the late 1940s and early 1950s, Gorski would have been part of the everyday management of the association. Her skills as an orator were emphasised by Butler. She wasn't dictatorial or domineering. Uh, she listened to people but she could quickly sum up situations. She was a very thoughtful uh, speaker. It wasn't just off the cuff. I mean, she, she thought about what she was going to say, and you could see that it was coming from her experience and from her intelligence. And so her resignation from the Married Women's Association appears to have been both a surprise and a huge loss for the members left behind. She turned her back on the association's policy of joint ownership because, in her view, It is pure gold digging. Not only would the men of this country never agree to legislation to effectuate it, but the average wife would never ask it. Instead, Normandon's agreed alliance idea made more sense to Gorski. If women of all parties and views would earnestly unite on that one reform, most of the others they desire would be rapidly achieved. The agreed independence allowance is the wife's first step. So Gorski followed Normanton's lead and seemed rather unfazed by the drama swirling around the meeting in which she resigned. This makes sense given what John Butler told me about her personality. But Doreen was tough. I don't mean she was un- unfeeling or heartless. She wasn't, but she was also tough. She was prepared to go ahead with things. And I think her previous experience of an un- unhappy marriage and so on and so forth, had hardened her to a degree so that she could put up with criticism and opposition. Seemingly, in spite of the difficulties with Normanton's Alliance for Wives model, the other founding members of the Council of Married Women were unwavering in their support of it. From this perspective, the split isn't all that surprising. Married Women's Association treasurer Evelyn Hamilton, who resigned alongside Gorski, expressed her feelings on the matter in a letter to Teresa billington Gregg, who we also heard more about in previous episodes. We did our best with the memorandum. I personally wore myself to a standstill getting it away. 
I'm personally unhappy at the attitude of the extremist group and more so at the giving to the press of confidential matters discussed at the executive committee. Whatever we'd put in, some group would have disagreed, perhaps not quite so verbally and publicly, and the split within, which has been there for many years, would have come out anyway. Clearly, she was of the view that the fight over Normanton's memorandum simply catalyzed the inevitable split. Commission of Marriage and Divorce was important for the history of the Married Women's Association, not only because it acknowledged the importance of the group's goal of equal partnership in marriage and provided lessons for reform, it also triggered its fragmentation, bringing divisions embedded within the association to the fore. The different submissions that led to the Married Women's Association's split exposed the divergence of opinion within the group over the practical meaning of equality in marriage. The mixed messages in the press of what the Married Women's Association had hoped to achieve might have done irreparable harm to their chances of reform. Helena Normanton's accusations that the Married Women's Association was anti-man could have affected its support from members of the public too. And the pressure applied by the Married Women's Association on lawmakers was diluted when the association was disunited. Yet there was a glimmer of hope in the Royal Commission's report. Though the government hadn't agreed to take forward any of the Commission's recommendations, its smaller concessions, such as its proposal regarding housekeeping savings to be divided equally, gave the group cause for optimism, as we'll see in the next episode of Quiet Revolutionaries. Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Sharon Thompson, produced by Ed Townend and with voice acting by Lynn Hoare and Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives, and all of the wonderful people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Heal, is out now.